Section 33 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 9, Chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 1 of those who lawfully may, and of those who may not, write such histories as this, among other good uses for which I have thought proper to institute these several introductory chapters, I have considered them as a kind of mark or stamp, which may hereafter enable a very indifferent reader to distinguish what is true and genuine in this historic kind of writing from what is false and counterfeit. Indeed, it seems likely that some such mark may shortly become necessary, since the favorable reception which two or three authors have lately procured for their works of this nature from the public will probably serve as an encouragement to many others to undertake the like. Thus a swarm of foolish novels and monstrous romances will be produced, either to the great impoverishing of booksellers, or to the great loss of time, and deprivation of morals in the reader, nay, often to the spreading of scandal and calumny, and to the prejudice of the characters of many worthy and honest people. I question not but the ingenious author of the spectator was principally induced to prefix Greek and Latin mottoes to every paper, from the same consideration of guarding against the pursuit of those scribblers, who, having no talents of a writer but what is taught by the writing-master, are yet nowise afraid, nor ashamed, to amuse the same titles with the greatest genius than their good brother in the fable was of braying in the lion's skin. By the device, therefore, of this motto, it became impracticable for any man to presume to imitate the spectators without understanding at least one sentence in the learned languages. In the same manner I have now secured myself from the imitation of those who are utterly incapable of any degree of reflection, and whose learning is not equal to an essay. I would not be here understood to insinuate that the greatest merit of such historical productions can ever lie in these introductory chapters, but, in fact, those parts which contain mere narrative only, afford much more encouragement to the pen of an imitator than those which are composed of observation and reflection. Here I mean such imitators as Roe was of Shakespeare, or as Horace hints some of the Romans were of Cato, by bare feet and sour faces. To invent good stories, and to tell them well, are possibly very rare talents, and yet I have observed few persons who have scrupled to aim at both. 
and if we examine the romances and novels with which the world abounds, I think we may fairly conclude that most of the authors would not have attempted to show their teeth, if the expression may be allowed me, in any other way of writing, nor would, indeed, have strung together a dozen sentences on any other subject, whatever. Scribimis indocti doctice passim. Each desperate blockhead dares to write, Verse is the trade of every living white. Francis. May be more truly said of the historian and biographer than of any other species of writing, for all the arts and sciences, even criticism itself, require some little degree of learning and knowledge. Poetry, indeed, may perhaps be thought an exception, but then it demands numbers, or something like numbers, whereas to the composition of novels and romances nothing is necessary but paper, pens, and ink, with the manual capacity of using them. This, I conceive, their production show to be the opinion of the authors themselves, and this must be the opinion of their readers if indeed there be any such. Hence we are to derive that universal contempt which the world, who always denominate the whole from the majority, have cast on all historical writers, who do not draw their materials from records. And it is the apprehension of this contempt that hath made us so cautiously avoid the term romance a name with which we might otherwise have been well enough contented. Though, as we have good authority for all our characters, no less indeed than the vast, authentic, doomsday book of nature, as is elsewhere hinted, our labours have sufficient title to the name of history. Certainly they deserve some distinction from those works, which one of the wittiest of men regarded only as proceeding from a pruritus, or indeed rather from a looseness of the brain. But besides the dishonour which is thus cast on one of the most useful as well as entertaining of all kinds of writing, there is just reason to apprehend that by encouraging such authors we shall propagate them much dishonour of another kind. I mean, to the characters of many good and valuable members of society. For the dullest writers, no more than the dullest companions, are always inoffensive. They have both enough of language to be indecent and abusive. And surely if the opinion just above cited be true, we cannot wonder that works so nastily derived should be nasty themselves, or have a tendency to make others so. To prevent, therefore, for the future, such intemperate abuses of leisure, of letters, and of the liberty of the press, especially as the world seems at present to be more than usually threatened with them, I shall here venture to mention some qualifications, every one of which 
are in a pretty high degree necessary to this order of historians. The first is genius, without a full vein of which no study, says Horace, can avail us. By genius I would understand that power, or rather those powers of the mind, which are capable of penetrating into all things within our reach and knowledge, and of distinguishing their essential differences. These are no other than invention and judgment, and they are both called by the collective name of genius, as they are of those gifts of nature which we bring with us into the world, concerning each of which many seem to have fallen into very great errors. For by invention, I believe, is generally understood a creative faculty, which would indeed prove most romance writers to have the highest pretensions to it, whereas by invention is really meant no more, and so the word signifies, than discovery, or finding out, or to explain it at large, a quick and sagacious penetration into the true essence of all the objects of our contemplation. This, I think, can rarely exist without the concomitancy of judgment, for how we can be said to have discovered the true essence of two things, without discerning their difference, seems to me hard to conceive. Now this last is the undisputed province of judgment, and yet some few men of wit have agreed with all the dull fellows in the world in representing these two to have been seldom or never the property of one and the same person. But though they should be so, they are not sufficient for our purpose, without a good share of learning, for which I could again cite the authority of Horace, and of many others, if any was necessary to prove that tools are of no service to a workman, when they are not sharpened by art, or when he wants rules to direct him in his work, or hath no matter to work upon. All these uses are supplied by learning, for nature can only furnish us with capacity, or, as I have chose to illustrate it, with the tools of our profession, learning must fit them for use, must direct them in it, and lastly must contribute part, at least, of the materials. A competent knowledge of history and of the belles-lettres is here absolutely necessary, and without this share of knowledge at least, to affect the character of an historian, is as vain as to endeavor at building a house without timber, or mortar, or brick, or stone. Homer and Milton, who, though they added the ornament of numbers to their works, were both historians of our order, were masters of all the learning of their times. Again, there is another sort of knowledge beyond the power of learning to bestow, and this is to be had by conversation. 
So necessary is this to the understanding the characters of men, that none are more ignorant of them than those learned pedants whose lives have been entirely consumed in colleges and among books. For, however exquisitely human nature may have been described by writers, the true practical system can be learnt only in the world. Indeed, the like happens in every other kind of knowledge. Neither physic nor law are to be practically known from books. Nay, the farmer, the planter, the gardener, must perfect by experience what he hath acquired the rudiments of by reading. How accurately soever the ingenious Mr. Miller may have described the plant, he himself would advise his disciple to see it in the garden. As we must perceive, that after the nicest strokes of a Shakespeare or a Johnson, of a Wycherley or an Otway, some touches of nature will escape the reader, which the judicious action of a Garrick or a Cyber or a Clive can convey to him. So, on the real stage, the character shows himself in a stronger and bolder light than he can be described. And if this be the case, in those fine and nervous descriptions which great authors themselves have taken from life, how much more strongly will it hold when the writer himself takes his lines, not from nature, but from books? Such characters are only the faint copy of a copy, and can have neither the justness nor spirit of an original. Note. There is a peculiar propriety in mentioning this great actor, Garrick, and these two most justly celebrated actresses, Sibber or Clive, in this place, as they have all formed themselves on the study of nature only, and not on the imitation of their predecessors. Hence they have been able to excel all who have gone before them, a degree of merit which the servile herd of imitators can never possibly arrive at. End of note. Now this conversation in our historian must be universal, that is, with all ranks and degrees of men, for the knowledge of what is called high life will not instruct him in low, nor a converso will his being acquainted with the inferior part of mankind teach him the manners of the superior. And though it may be thought that the knowledge of either may sufficiently enable him to describe at least that in which he hath been conversant, yet he will even here fall greatly short of perfection, for the follies of either rank do in reality illustrate each other. For instance, the affectation of high life appears more glaring and ridiculous from the simplicity of the low, and again the rudeness and barbarity of this latter strikes with much stronger ideas of absurdity when contrasted with, and opposed to, the politeness which controls the former. 
Besides, to say the truth, the manners of our historian will be improved by both these conversations, for in the one he will easily find examples of plainness, honesty, and sincerity, and in the other of refinement, elegance, and a liberality of spirit, which last quality I myself have scarce ever seen in men of low birth and education. Nor will all the qualities I have hitherto given my historian avail him, unless he have what is generally meant by a good heart, and be capable of feeling. The author who will make me weep, says Horace, must first weep himself. In reality no man can paint a distress well which he doth not feel while he is painting it. Nor do I doubt but that the most pathetic and affecting scenes have been writ with tears. In the same manner it is with the ridiculous. I am convinced I never make my reader laugh heartily but where I have laughed before him, unless it should happen at any time that instead of laughing with me he should be inclined to laugh at me. Perhaps this may have been the case at some passages in this chapter, from which apprehension I will here put an end to it. CHAPTER Two, CONTAINING A VERY SURPRISING ADVENTURE INDEED, WHICH MR. JONES MET WITH IN HIS WALK WITH THE MAN OF THE HILL. AURORA NOW FIRST OPENED HER CASEMENT. I only say the day began to break, when Jones walked forth in company with the stranger, and mounted Mazard Hill, of which they had no sooner gained the summit than one of the most noble prospects in the world presented itself to their view, and which we would likewise present to the reader, but for two reasons. First, we despair of making those who have seen this prospect, admire our description. Secondly, we very much doubt whether those who have not seen it would understand it. Jones stood for some minutes fixed in one posture, and directing his eyes towards the south, upon which the old gentleman asked what he was looking at with so much attention. Alas, sir! answered he, with a sigh, I was endeavouring to trace out my own journey hither. Good heavens, what a distance is Gloucester from us! What a vast track of land must be between me and my own home! Ay, ay, young gentleman, cries the other, and from what you love better than your own home, or I am mistaken, I perceive now the object of your contemplation is not within your sight, and yet I fancy you have a pleasure in looking that way. Jones answered with a smile, I find, old friend, you have not yet forgot the sensations of your youth. I own my thoughts were employed as you have guessed. They now walked to that part of the hill, 
which looks to the north-west, and which hangs over a vast and extensive wood. Here they were no sooner arrived, than they heard at a distance the most violent screams of a woman, proceeding from the wood below them. Jones listened a moment, and then, without saying a word to his companion, for indeed the occasion seemed sufficiently pressing, ran, or rather slid down the hill, and, without the least apprehension or concern for his own safety, made directly to the thicket, whence the sound had issued. He had not entered far into the wood, before he beheld a most shocking sight indeed, a woman stripped half-naked under the hands of a ruffian, who had put his garter round her neck, and was endeavouring to draw her up to a tree. Jones asked no questions at this interval, but fell instantly upon the ruffian, and made such good use of his trusty oaken stick, that he laid him sprawling on the ground, before he could defend himself, indeed almost before he knew he was attacked. Nor did he cease the prosecution of his blows, till the woman herself begged him to forbear, saying she believed he had sufficiently done his business. The poor wretch then fell upon her knees to Jones, and gave him a thousand thanks for her deliverance. He presently lifted her up, and told her he was highly pleased with the extraordinary accident which had sent him thither for her relief, where it was so improbable she should find any, adding that heaven seemed to have designed him as the most happy instrument of her protection. Nay, answered she, I could almost conceive you to be some good angel, and to say the truth, you look more like an angel than a man in my eye. Indeed, he was a charming figure, and if a very fine person, and a most comely set of features adorned with youth, health, strength, freshness, spirit, and good nature, can make a man resemble an angel. He certainly had that resemblance. The redeemed captive was not altogether so much of the human angelic species. She seemed to be at least of the middle age, nor had her face much appearance of beauty. But her clothes, being torn from all the upper part of her body, her breasts, which were well formed and extremely white, attracted the eyes of her deliverer, and for a few moments they stood silent, and gazing at each other, till the ruffian on the ground beginning to move, Jones took the garter, which had been intended for another purpose, and bound both his hands behind him. And now, on contemplating his face, he discovered, greatly to his surprise, and perhaps not a little to his satisfaction, this very person to be no other than Ensign Northerton. Nor had the Ensign forgotten his former antagonist, whom he knew the moment he came to himself.
his surprise was equal to that of Jones, but I conceive his pleasure was rather less on this occasion. Jones helped Northerton upon his legs, and then, looking him steadfastly in the face, I fancy, sir, said he, you did not expect to meet me any more in this world, and I confess I had as little expectation to find you here. However, fortune, I see, hath brought us once more together, and hath given me satisfaction for the injury I have received, even without my own knowledge. It is very much like a man of honour indeed, answered Northerton, to take satisfaction by knocking a man down behind his back. Neither am I capable of giving you satisfaction here, as I have no sword. But if you dare behave like a gentleman, let us go where I can furnish myself with one, and I will do by you as a man of honour ought. Doth it become such a villain as you are, cries Jones, to contaminate the name of honour by assuming it? But I shall waste no time in discourse with you. Justice requires satisfaction of you now, and shall have it. Then turning to the woman, he asked her if she was near her home, or if not, whether she was acquainted with any house in the neighbourhood, where she might procure herself some decent clothes, in order to proceed to a justice of the peace. She answered she was an entire stranger in that part of the world. Jones then, recollecting himself, said he had a friend near who would direct them. Indeed, he wondered at his not following. But, in fact, the good man of the hill, when our hero departed, sat himself down on the brow, where, though he had a gun in his hand, he with great patience and unconcern had attended the issue. Jones then, stepping without the wood, perceived the old man sitting as we have just described him. He presently exerted his utmost agility, and with surprising expedition ascended the hill. The old man advised him to carry the woman to Upton, which he said was the nearest town, and there he would be sure of furnishing her with all manner of conveniences. Jones, having received his direction to the place, took his leave of the man of the hill, and, desiring him to direct Partridge the same way, returned hastily to the wood. Our hero, at his departure, to make this inquiry of his friend, had considered that as the ruffian's hands were tied behind him, he was incapable of executing any wicked purposes on the poor woman. Besides, he knew he should not be beyond the reach of her voice, and could return soon enough to prevent any mischief. He had, moreover, declared to the villain that if he attempted the least insult, he would be himself immediately the executioner of vengeance on him. But Jones unluckily forgot that though the hands of Northerton were tied, his legs were at liberty. Nor 
did he lay the least injunction on the prisoner that he should not make what use of these he pleased. Northerton, therefore, having given no parole of that kind, thought he might, without any breach of honour, depart, not being obliged, as he imagined, by any rules to wait for a formal discharge. He therefore took up his legs, which were at liberty, and walked off through the wood, which favoured his retreat, nor did the woman, whose eyes were perhaps rather turned toward her deliverer, once think of his escape, or give herself any concern or trouble to prevent it. Jones, therefore, at his return, found the woman alone. He would have spent some time in searching for Northerton, but she would not permit him, earnestly entreating that he would accompany her to the town whither they had been directed. As to the fellow's escape, said she, it gives me no uneasiness, for philosophy and Christianity both preach up forgiveness of injuries, but for you, sir, I am concerned at the trouble I give you. Nay, indeed, my nakedness may well make me ashamed to look you in the face, and if it was not for the sake of your protection, I should wish to go alone. Jones offered her his coat, but, I know not for what reason, she absolutely refused the most earnest solicitations to accept it. He then begged her to forget both the causes of her confusion. With regard to the former, says he, I have done no more than my duty in protecting you, and as for the latter, I will entirely remove it by walking before you all the way, for I would not have my eyes offend you, and I could not answer for my power of resisting the attractive charms of so much beauty. Thus our hero and the redeemed lady walked in the same manner as Orpheus and Eurydice marched heretofore. But, though I cannot believe that Jones was designedly tempted by his fair one to look behind him, yet as she frequently wanted his assistance to help her over stiles, and had besides many trips and other accidents, he was often obliged to turn about. However, he had better fortune than what attended poor Orpheus, for he brought his companion, or rather follower, safe into the famous town of Upton. CHAPTER Three, THE ARRIVAL OF MR. JONES WITH HIS LADY AT THE INN, AND A VERY FULL DESCRIPTION OF THE BATTLE OF UPTON. Though the reader, we doubt not, is very eager to know who this lady was, and how she fell into the hands of Mr. Northerton, we must beg him to suspend his curiosity for a short time, as we are obliged, for some very good reasons, which hereafter perhaps he may guess, to delay his satisfaction a little longer. Mr. Jones and his fair companion no sooner entered the town than they went directly to that inn 
which in their eyes presented the fairest appearance to the street. Here Jones, having ordered a servant to show a room above stairs, was ascending, when the disheveled fair, hastily following, was laid hold on by the master of the house, who cried, Hey, day, where is that beggar wench going? Stay below downstairs, I desire you. But Jones, at that instance, thundered from above, Let the lady come up, in so authoritative a voice, that the good man instantly withdrew his hands, and the lady made the best of her way to the chamber. Here Jones wished her joy of her safe arrival, and then departed, in order, as he promised, to send the landlady up with some clothes. The poor woman thanked him heartily for all his kindness, and said she hoped she should see him again soon, to thank him a thousand times more. During this short conversation she covered her white bosom as well as she could possibly with her arms, for Jones could not avoid stealing a sly peep or two, though he took all imaginable care to avoid giving any offence. Our travellers had happened to take up their residence at a house of exceeding good repute, whither Irish ladies of strict virtue, and many northern lasses of the same predicament, were accustomed to resort on their way to Bath. The landlady, therefore, would by no means have admitted any conversation of a disreputable kind to pass under her roof. Indeed, so foul and contagious are all such proceedings that they contaminate the very innocent scenes where they are committed, and give the name of a bad house, or of a house of ill repute, to all those where they are suffered to be carried on. Not that I would intimate that such strict chastity as was preserved in the temple of Vesta can possibly be maintained at a public inn. My good landlady did not hope for such a blessing, nor would any one of the ladies I have spoken of, or, indeed, any others of the most rigid note, have expected or insisted on any such thing. But to exclude all vulgar concubinage, and to drive all whores in rags from within the walls, is within the power of every one. This my landlady very strictly adhered to, and this her virtuous guests, who did not travel in rags, would very reasonably have expected of her. Now, it required no very blamable degree of suspicion to imagine that Mr. Jones and his ragged companion had certain purposes in their intention, which, though tolerated in some Christian countries, connived at in others, and practiced in all, are, however, as expressly forbidden as murder, or any other horrid vice, by that religion which is universally believed in those countries. The landlady, therefore, had no sooner received an intimation of the entrance of the above-said persons, than she began to meditate the most expeditious means for their expulsion. In order to this, 
she had provided herself with a long and deadly instrument, with which, in times of peace, the chambermaid was wont to demolish the labors of the industrious spider. In vulgar phrase, she had taken up the broomstick, and was just about to sally from the kitchen, when Jones accosted her with the demand of a gown and other vestments to cover the half-naked woman upstairs. Nothing can be more provoking to the human temper, nor more dangerous to that cardinal virtue, patience, than solicitations of extraordinary offices of kindness on behalf of those very persons with whom we are highly incensed. For this reason, Shakespeare hath artfully introduced his Desdemona, soliciting favors for Cassio of her husband, as the means of inflaming not only his jealousy, but his rage, to the highest pitch of madness, and we find the unfortunate more less able to command his passion on this occasion than even when he beheld his valued present to his wife in the hands of his supposed rival. In fact, we regard these efforts as insults on our understanding, and to such the pride of man is very difficultly brought to submit. My landlady, though a very good-tempered woman, had, I suppose, some of this pride in her composition, for Jones had scarce ended his request, when she fell upon him with a certain weapon, which, though it be neither long nor sharp nor hard, nor indeed threatens from its appearance with either death or wound, hath been, however, held in great dread and abhorrence by many wise men, nay, by many brave ones, insomuch that some who have dared to look into the mouth of a loaded cannon have not dared to look into a mouth where this weapon was brandished, and, rather than run the hazard of its execution, have contented themselves with making a most pitiful and sneaking figure in the eyes of all their acquaintance. To confess the truth, I am afraid Mr. Jones was one of these, for though he was attacked and violently belabored with the aforesaid weapon, he could not be provoked to make any resistance, but in a most cowardly manner applied, with many entreaties, to his antagonist to desist from pursuing her blows. In plain English, he only begged her with the utmost earnestness to hear him. But before he could obtain his request, my landlord himself entered into the fray, and embraced that side of the cause which seemed to stand very little in need of assistance. There are a sort of heroes who are supposed to be determined in their choosing or avoiding a conflict by the character and behavior of the person whom they are to engage. These are said to know their men, and Jones, I believe, knew his woman. For though he had been so submissive to her, he was no sooner attacked by her husband 
than he demonstrated an immediate spirit of resentment, and enjoined him silence under a very severe penalty, no less than that, I think, of being converted into fuel for his own fire. The husband, with great indignation, but with a mixture of pity, answered, You must pray first to be made able. I believe I am a better man than yourself. I, every way, that I am. And, presently, proceeded to discharge half a dozen whores at the lady above stairs, the last of which had scarce issued from his lips, when a swinging blow from the cudgel that Jones carried in his hand assaulted him over the shoulders. It is a question whether the landlord or the landlady was the most expeditious in returning this blow. My landlord, whose hands were empty, fell to with his fist, and the good wife, uplifting her broom and aiming at the head of Jones, had probably put an immediate end to the fray, and to Jones likewise, had not the descent of this broom been prevented, not by the miraculous intervention of any heathen deity, but by a very natural, though fortunate accident, viz., by the arrival of Partridge, who entered the house at that instant, for fear had caused him to run every step from the hill, and who, seeing the danger which threatened his master or companion, which you choose to call him, prevented so sad a catastrophe by catching hold of the landlady's arm, as it was brandished aloft in the air. The landlady soon perceived the impediment which prevented her blow, and being unable to rescue her arm from the hands of Partridge, she let fall the broom, and then leaving Jones to the discipline of her husband, she fell with the utmost fury on that poor fellow, who had already given some intimation of himself, by crying, Zounds, do you intend to kill my friend? Partridge, though not much addicted to battle, would not, however, stand still when his friend was attacked, nor was he much displeased with that part of the combat which fell to his share. He therefore returned my lady's blows as soon as he received them, and now the fight was obstinately maintained on all parts, and it seemed doubtful to which side fortune would incline when the naked lady, who had listened at the top of the stairs to the dialogue which preceded the engagement, descended suddenly from above, and, without weighing the unfair inequality of two to one, fell upon the poor woman who was boxing with Partridge. Nor did that great champion desist, but rather redoubled his fury when he found fresh suckers were arrived to his assistance. Victory must now have fallen to the side of the travellers, for the bravest troops must yield to numbers. Had not Susan, the chambermaid, come luckily to support her mistress? This Susan was as two-handed a wench, according to the phrase, as any in the country, 
and would, I believe, have beat the famed Thalistris herself, or any of her subject Amazons, for her form was robust and manlike, and every way made for such encounters. As her hands and arms were formed to give blows with great mischief to an enemy, so was her face as well contrived to receive blows without any great injury to herself, her nose being already flat to her face, her lips were so large that no swelling could be perceived in them, and, moreover, they were so hard that a fist could hardly make any impression on them. Lastly, her cheekbones stood out, as if nature had intended them for two bastions to defend her eyes in those encounters for which she seemed so well calculated, and to which she was most wonderfully well inclined. This fair creature, entering the field of battle, immediately filed to that wing where her mistress maintained so unequal a fight with one of either sex. Here she presently challenged Partridge to single combat. He accepted the challenge, and a most desperate fight began between them. Now, the dogs of war being let loose began to lick their bloody lips. Now victory, with golden wings, hung hovering in the air. Now fortune, taking her scales from her shelf, began to weigh the fates of Tom Jones, his female companion, and Partridge, against the landlord, his wife, and maid, all which hung in exact balance before her. When a good-natured accident put suddenly an end to the bloody fray, with which half of the combatants had already sufficiently feasted. This accident was the arrival of a coach and four, upon which my landlord and landlady immediately desisted from fighting, and at their entreaty obtained the same favour of their antagonists. But Susan was not so kind to Partridge, for that Amazonian fair, having overthrown and bestrid her enemy, was now cuffing him lustily with both her hands, without any regard to his request of a cessation of arms, or to those loud exclamations of murder which he roared forth. No sooner, however, had Jones quitted the landlord than he flew to the rescue of his defeated companion, from whom he with much difficulty drew off the enraged chambermaid. But Partridge was not immediately sensible of his deliverance, for he still lay flat on the floor, guarding his face with his hands, nor did he cease roaring till Jones had forced him to look up, and to perceive that the battle was at an end. The landlord, who had no visible hurt, and the landlady, hiding her well-scratched face with her handkerchief, ran both hastily to the door to attend the coach, from which a young lady and her maid now alighted. These the landlady presently ushered into that room where Mr. Jones had at first deposited his fair prize, 
as it was the best department in the house. Hither they were obliged to pass through the field of battle, which they did with the utmost haste, covering their faces with their handkerchiefs, as desirous to avoid the notice of any one. Indeed, their caution was quite unnecessary, for the poor unfortunate Helen, the fatal cause of all the bloodshed, was entirely taken up in endeavouring to conceal her own face, and Jones was no less occupied in rescuing Partridge from the fury of Susan, which, being happily effected, the poor fellow immediately departed to the pump to wash his face, and to stop that bloody torrent which Susan had plentifully set a-flowing from his nostrils. End of section thirty three of Tom Jones. Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, for LibriVox. Spring two thousand and eight.